we're going to consider the truth that a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. A hope worth having is a hope worth giving. And in 2 Kings chapter 7, I just want to read the first two verses of this story to you. 2 Kings 7, beginning in verse 3, it says, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say, We'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. Two verses, four times the word die is used. This is a clue to us that this is a pretty hopeless situation. Now, I remember in uh, 1994, I was a sophomore in high school, and, and uh, <clears throat> how many of you are skiers? Any skiers in the house this morning? I wasn't, but I figured, you know, we live in Syracuse. It snows about 320 days a year here. Uh, I should figure out something to do in the snow other than sit inside and eat. And so uh, my, uh, my friend was in a ski club at my high school, and he invited me out. He said, oh, don't worry. I'll take care of you. I'll teach you, because I was pretty nervous about it. And it looked like a lot of fun, but it looked like it could be miserable if you don't know what you're doing. And so uh, he said, don't worry. I'll take you out. I'll teach you. No big deal. I was like, all right. So one night after school, I went out, my first experience ever skiing, and got my, my skis and my poles, and, and uh, we're, we get, he's like, follow me, and, and we get on the lift. We're, we're going up the lift, and I look over to the right, and there's this little tiny hill where people are, like, learning how to ski. I said, what's that? He's like, oh, that's, you don't want that. I'm like, what is it called? They're like, that's a bunny hill. What do you use the bunny hill for? Well, that's for people who don't know how to ski, learn how to ski. And I was like... That's me. That's, that's me. Why are we not headed to the bunny hill? He's like, oh, come on. You don't need the bunny hill. He's like, just uh, don't worry about it. So we go up this huge hill. I've never skied in my life. And, and we're at the top of the hill. And he's like, it's not hard. It's really easy. Just, just do this, do that. Where he's trying to teach me. And uh, long story short, three and a half hours later, I was at the bottom of the hill. And about an hour and a half into it, he ditched me. I mean, he just took off. Like, he was all like, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to help you. But he was like, I was ruining his time. Because, you know, he was there to ski. And he could only go like 10 feet. Then he'd have to help me back up. And then 10 feet and help me back up. And finally, like an hour and a half into this halfway down the hill, he just took off. I mean, what a friend, right? Just, just bail on me. You guys actually would know him. I, 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 won't, I won't expose him for who he is. But his initials are John Rogers. And uh, he's a... Uh, He's an associate pastor now at, at North Central Assembly of God, 7463 Buckley Road. <laughs> if any of you want to find him. So about, about two and a half hours into my, or, my hopeless ordeal, I ended up on the side of the mountain, which is bad because for those of you that ski, you know in the middle of the mountain the snow is packed down. That's where you're supposed to stay. But on the side of the mountain, the snow is really powdery, and it's not meant to be skied and. And uh, that's where they just push it, push the snow to. But I ended up over there, and I was like up to my chest in this powdery snow. And I thought, I'm going to die here. Like, this is, this is it. This is it for me. And uh, all of a sudden, this little girl, she couldn't have been more than like 11, 10 years old. She's like, come skiing over. You know, she's like flying down the hill. She comes flying up to me, stops, and then reaches out her hand and helps me 
out of the snow. Which, you know, it's sweet, but it's humiliating, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, no guy wants the, a girl's help, especially a 10-year-old girl, to come help you out of a hopeless situation. But uh, I was just, I needed hope. And she brought hope, and so she got me out, and an hour later, I was at the bottom of the hill, and, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was one of the most hopeless experiences of my life, and you may not have shared that sort of an experience, but we all have moments and days and weeks and months, and sometimes it feels like years of hopelessness, uh, times when we really need some hope to get through the tough times, and we look to other people and we look to other things. And, and then there are times when there are friends and family and people around us that they need hope. And they come to us. And so we try to encourage them. We try to help them out. You might tell a friend who's just gone through a horrible breakup, don't worry, you'll find another person. There's, there's many fish in the sea. Uh, maybe when somebody feels like everyone is against them, you say, don't worry, you're great. You're great. I'm not against you. We tell people, don't worry, things will get better. Songs are songs, stories have been written, movies have been made, speeches have been delivered to inspire us to hope. And in a world where hopeless times are certain to come, we sure need hope. Now that, that girl on the hill, she didn't know me, she didn't owe me anything, she didn't have to come and offer me any sort of hope. But maybe when she saw me floundering over there in the powdery snow, she had a flashback to her first skiing experience. Maybe she remembered that it wasn't always so easy for her. And then maybe she thought, but now it's so much fun. It brings me so much joy. And maybe she thought, if this, if this buffoon over here can get through this first trip down the hill, then maybe someday he'll enjoy and know skiing the way that I do. Now, it didn't work that way, but maybe she thought that. See, and here's what I'm saying, that for her, the hope uh, the hope that she had, the joy that she had was worth trying to give to somebody else. The hope of skiing was worth having, so it was worth giving. And this morning we're saying that a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. In 2 Kings chapter 7, we read about a tremendously hopeless time. Now, I know the economy is not so great right now here, but it was so much worse in this story. What happened was the people of Israel, they were under siege. This was a military strategy in these times where the enemy would come and they would surround the city and they would not allow anything in and they would not allow anything out. And in this day and age, it was a really big problem because that's how they got food. That's how they got what they needed to survive. So they would basically starve them out. They wouldn't let any food in and let, it, let any money out, no sort of trade, no sort of commerce. And so the Israelites are surrounded by the Arameans, and it is a hopeless time for them. And here's how bad it is according to the scriptures. People were paying six or $600 for a bowl of field greens. $600 for a bowl of field greens. Now, if you're like me and you're not much of a salad eater, then you probably wouldn't pay $6 for a bowl of field greens. But these people were coughing up $600 just for a bowl, of, just for a salad, basically. Not only that, the scripture says that they were paying the equivalent of $10,000. Now, how much food would $10,000 get you? If you walked into Wegmans with a $10,000 gift card, I mean, you could do pretty good, right? You could walk out with quite a few things. Well, for them, $10,000, this is how desperate and hopeless this situation was. I'm just trying to paint this picture for you. $10,000 would buy them a donkey head. Just the head of a donkey. Anybody, anybody, any fathers request donkey head soup? 
for your Father's Day lunch. It's a pretty bad time. And if that doesn't sound hopeless enough, listen to this situation. The king is walking through the city one day, and a lady calls out to him for help. And he says, what's the problem? What's going on? And she says, I live with this other lady. And we both have infant children. We both have young children. And we're so hungry that we've turned to cannibalism. We're so hungry that we agree that uh, first we will take care of your child, and then we'll take care of my child. And she said what happened was we went through with the first half of the plan, and now this woman will not go through with the second half of the plan. Now, this is an incredibly disturbing story, I understand. And, but can you imagine the level of desperation you have to get to before that thought even crosses your mind? Can you imagine how hopeless it must be, how hopeless it must be before you would go through with something that horrific, all right? So whatever hopeless situation that I may have just described in my skiing story, whatever hopeless situations you have encountered, this situation was tremendously, tremendously hopeless. And where we picked up the story in verse 3, we, we meet four men, we meet four lepers who discover in this story that a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. Even in um, a hopeless situation, the leper's situation was even more hopeless. They were outside of the city gate. Now, why are they outside of the city gate? Because leprosy was such a contagious, such a feared, such a horrible disease that you could have nothing to do with regular people. If people came near you, you'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean. You'd have to ring a bell. You'd have to do anything to keep people away from you. So leprosy would physically destroy your body, but socially it totally destroyed you also. I said these four men, they may have been fathers, they may have had children. Now, as much physical pain as could be brought upon you, fathers, imagine the, the emotional pain of never being able to hold your child again, never being able to, to kiss your daughter, your son, never being able to hug your wife again. Imagine what these men have lost, physical, emotional, social. They are outsiders. Spiritually, many people believe that if you got leprosy, it's because there was an issue between you and God. You sinned, and so now you're a leper, and God's punishing you. So in a hopeless situation, these men are even more hopeless. Physical, emotional, social, spiritual, alienation. They have no hope, so here's what they decide. They say, we could stay here and starve. We could go into the city They're not, and st starve. Either way, we die, and they hatch this plan. They say, let's go to the enemies. And maybe the enemy has pity on us. Maybe they, they give us some food. But maybe they kill us. What does it matter? Either way, we're going to die. And so they go in and, and they say, worst case scenario, we'll die. And so then let's pick up the story in verse 5 of Second Kings chapter 7. It says, at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So, they, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. What had happened here? Something incredibly supernatural. God had caused the enemy just to hear the sound of approaching enemies. And so they panicked and they ran. Can you imagine how frightening it is to feel like you're surrounded but you can't see where it's coming from? I mean, these people were terrified. They didn't take any time to pack up their stuff. They didn't pack up their food. They didn't pack up their gold, their silver, their donkeys, nothing. <coughs> they were so terrified, they just took off running. And the lepers come up to the scene. 
Now, here's what's amazing about the story at this point to me. The story is so far is this. What? God has already brought hope and deliverance to his people. He already did the work. The enemy's defeated. The enemy is gone. But where are the Israelites? Still living inside their city walls, enslaved and in bondage as if they are defeated. They still think they're trapped. They still think they're cornered. They still think they're without hope, even though God has already provided them with freedom. Does this sound like anyone that you know in your life that's not experienced the freedom that is available to them? Does it sound like you at some point in your life? where you were living, still captured, still, still uh, enslaved to things that God had already won the victory. God has already done the victory for them, and they don't know it. In verse 8, the story continues. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. And can you picture this moment? They enter one of the tents. They're like, hello, anyone here? Hello. Food and water. So they eat and they drink. Then they take silver, gold, and clothes. They went off and they hid them. And then they returned and they entered another tent. And they took some things from it and, and they hit them also. These guys hit the jackpot. I mean, this is amazing. Think about for a second. If you could have a shopping spree, a two-hour shopping spree in any store, where would you go? What store? I know that. I know my wife. I know my wife would go to Target. She she loves Target. So a shopping spree, any store. Can you imagine just running through the store? You got two hours to put as much stuff into the carts as you can, just grabbing. My strategy would be just get the most expensive stuff, even if I don't want it, and then sell it later. And then, and then, and then when I have more time, come back and get what I, obviously I've thought about this uh, a few times. And so they hit the jackpot. They got, they got it. I mean, can you imagine that moment for them? And then something changes. Verse 9. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. In other words, here's what they said to each other. A hope worth having is a hope worth giving. Think about it, though. What sort of hope had the people in that city offered the lepers? How easily could have the lepers said, we're going to sit out here, eat, drink, be merry, and just watch them starve to death. I mean, they rejected us. They sent us out. They Forget these people. Let them keep paying 10 large for donkey head soup. They didn't even let us in the city when we were surrounded by an enemy. I mean, we're surrounded by an enemy, and they still made us stay outside the city walls. They made us go live in our own colony. They have rejected us, but the lepers didn't do that. They realized that a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. And they turned to each other and they said, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. And what is good news? It's gospel. This is a day of gospel. And we need to go tell people about it. A hope worth having is a hope worth giving. And so the story ends like this, verse 10. So they went and they called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. Now can you imagine the ruckus in that city, the celebration in that city? Can you imagine the rush of humanity to get to that camp, to get food? I mean, let's remember, how hungry are they? What have they been turning to? And now... It's basically like saying, you are now literally surrounded by a Chinese buffet everywhere you go. <laughs> run out and get whatever you want. Now, 
There may be some crazy crowds at soccer games around this, around this world where, where people rush to games. There may be crazy crowds at rock concerts. I've been at concerts where it's, it's whoever can get to the front of the stage gets there. There's no seating. And when they open that gate, man, it's like people are just running to that. Maybe some of you have experienced some pretty intense crowds on Black Friday pushing their way towards the item that they want. But can I just suggest to you that any of those scenes would pale in comparison to this scene. These people are running like crazy. Why? Because hope is back on the scene. It was hopeless, but now there's hope. Why? Because four unlikely heroes had discovered the truth that a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. So what does this mean for us this morning? How does the hope that these lepers experience relate to the hope available to us? And we're going to close with these three things. And I I just want to say that the hope that they experienced that day and the hope that's available to us, that there are two key similarities, but there's one major, major difference, okay? There's two key similarities, and there's one major difference. And if you're a note taker, you're going to write these down. Two key similarities, one major difference, ready? Here's the first key similarity between the hope they experienced and the hope that we experienced. Number one, God alone brought the victory. God alone brought the victory and the spoils that the lepers had received. These lepers were not trained warriors, all right? They're not ninjas. They did not go out there and defeat a whole army. They walked into a scene where the victory had already been taken care of. They walked into a windfall of blessing and spoils poured out upon them, but they did not lift a single finger to obtain it for themselves. Think about when David went and faced Goliath, and all of Israel like cowered in fear, and many of them doubted him and said, what a bad plan. But the second Goliath died, who, vict- who did the victory now become? Everyone's. And they ran and they chased him down and they received the spoils. In other words, the victory of David was imparted to the Israelites even though they didn't lift a finger to obtain it for themselves. The victory of God in this story was imparted to these four lepers even though they didn't do anything to deserve it for themselves. And can I suggest to you this morning that the grace of God, that the mercy of God, that the victory that Jesus Christ won for us is ours even though you and I have not lifted one finger to obtain it. And we can actually push that a little bit further because not only did we not lift a finger to obtain it, but we were enemies of God. We were the ones who were crying, crucify him, crucify him. We were the ones who were mocking him on the cross. And salvation is because of God's work on our behalf. We may not be physical lepers this morning, but we were, or maybe we still are, spiritual lepers. We are outcasts. And Jesus Christ came and he died and he lived in our place. And like these lepers, Jesus was an unlikely hero. And like these lepers, Jesus was rejected by many. And these lepers found hope outside of the city walls, but years later, outside the walls of a different city, Jesus walked up a hill to provide hope for all. The lepers did nothing to deserve this. Do you deserve salvation? Do you deserve the grace of God? Have you earned his favor? Does he owe you his blessing? If there is even the slightest inkling of that in your heart, it will radically change the way you live for him in a negative way. But if you understand that it is all by the grace of God, then 
we're free to give hope. It's a hope worth having because it's not something that we've earned and deserved. And why does this matter? You know, why, why does it matter that we get this right? And here's why. Because if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that this victory was won for you and that God alone brought you this victory, then you'll never be really truly thankful in your heart directly and solely toward God. You'll never be in awe of the cross. You'll never be in awe. You will never experience the joy and the wonder of knowing that you have been truly rescued, that you were so lost that you couldn't even call out to be rescued, but that he came to you, that he stirred your heart, and that he rescued you from the mess that you were in. And the problem is, is it's easy for us to look at people around us who are in worse messes than us and say, yeah, I know God rescued me, but, uh, but I didn't, you know, basically I kind of made it easy for him, didn't I? I mean, I kind of helped him out, didn't I? as if we have added something to the work of the cross through our own good works, through our own good deeds. And the Apostle Paul, repeatedly in the New Testament, is disabusing the church of that mentality and saying, do you think that what was begun by the Spirit will now be completed through your human efforts? Either you fully believe in your heart that it's all from him and not at all from you, or there is some sort of works righteousness inside your heart where you're still trying to earn and deserve what is freely yours. Imagine if the lepers walked out there that day and although it was freely theirs, they didn't take any of it because they were looking for enemies to fight. We got to kill somebody to get this. We got to do something to earn this. We can't just take, right? Did that enter their mind for a second? No. The second they realized that it was empty, they just went after it. Number one similarity, we got to get this right. God alone brings a victory. Every victory in your life, every moment of spiritual greatness comes from God. And if for a second we think it's because of us, we've misunderstood the gospel. He is the forgiveness for every wrong thing we do, and he's the grace for every right thing we do. You and I have never done or said or thought a godly thing without the grace of God working in our lives. And if we don't understand that truth, we will be very measured in how we live for God. We'll be very measured in how we give, and we will never give hope as freely as we should because we really won't think that this hope is that great of having because in the end, we created it for ourselves. I was at Wegmans yesterday <clears throat> getting a Father's Day card. I know, kind of last minute, but that's how, that's how it goes. Um, I was at Wegmans yesterday getting a Father's Day card, and I was in the, I was in the card aisle, and uh, there was a mom and a daughter, and the daughter was maybe like eight or nine years old next to me. You know how sometimes you're not listening, but you start to pick up the tone of a conversation nearby? And that's kind of what happened. I wasn't listening to them, um, but they were just right next to me. So uh, I started to pick up this tone, this sort of ten this tension in the conversation. And so at that point, I kind of tuned in a little bit, and I hear the daughter saying, I want to buy this. I want to get this card for Dad. I want to get this card for Dad. I want to get this card for Dad. And her mom's like, no, 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 no. And then finally her mom's just like, just make him a card. And so I thought, I thought oh, that's kind of unusual. And then the daughter still kind of pushed it a little bit. And then the mother said this. She said, you know what? She said, I still am thinking about what your dad did for me on Mother's Day, and I don't really want to do much for him on Father's Day. And the daughter said, okay, and walked off. That is somebody who's measuring. <laughs> you see that? That's, that is a picture of religion. 
That is a picture of a heart that doesn't realize, that doesn't understand the generosity of God. They say, oh, I only got this much, and so I'm only going to give this much. And if you only do this much, then I'm going to do this much. But here's what the gospel says. God did it all. So what can he not ask of you now? And that's why grace is radical. It doesn't let us off the hook to live how we want. Grace is radical because now it says there's nothing he can't ask of you. If the gospel worked like a, like a government tax system where you pay your taxes and then you get your rights, then we could say to God, I did my part, now you do your part. But that's not how it works. God does it all, and now there's nothing he can't ask of you. So number one similarity, God alone brought the victory. But the second similarity between us and the lepers is that the lepers had a choice what to do with the good news. And we have a choice about what we're going to do with our good news. We are the same. We can tell others, or we can keep the good news to ourselves. A uh, couple months, last month, I heard our general secretary, James Bradford, and our district council, he preached from this passage, and he said, it, may, it might be easier, but it's never better. It might be easier to keep that good news to yourself. It might be easier not to go and tell people. It might be easier not to give hope but it's never, ever better. If you have hope, are you sharing it? Are you giving it? Are you giving your time, your money, your energy to get this hope to every person in your school, to every person in your workplace, to every person in your neighborhood, to every person, to every corner of the world? Are we doing everything we can to take this good news and say it's not right for us to enjoy this good news and not go tell others? I'm going to step aside and get super practical for five minutes. And isn't it true, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think this is a biblical truth, that Christians are happy to give. That's what the Bible says. Christians are happy to give. And the hope that we have, the hope that I've been talking about this morning, and since we've done nothing to deserve it, it should set us free from things that enslave us. And if your hope is not setting you free from things that enslave you, if you're still putting your hope in other things like money, then we need to re-engage the hope that God has offered us. We need to be on guard. Don't you agree that we need to be on guard against things that might master us, things that might enslave us? So does money have power over you? There's three, three attitudes, I think, and I'm going to move back into the message here. Three attitudes that I think reveal that money has power over you. One, you tense, you've been tense the last three minutes. <laughs> I mean, the second, the second, the second a, a preacher says the word money, you grab your wallet. <laughs> you know, you, you, just, you just, you tense up. You're anxious. You can't wait for me to move on. You, that is a clue. I'm not, I'm not putting anything on you. I'm just saying it's a hint. It's a clue that possibly money has power over you. And anything that you have to have actually has you. And so uh, it shows it has power. It shows that it still has power over you. So what do you do with it? Can I just really quickly, here's what you need to do. You need to look to the cross and see that according to 1 Corinthians 8, he who was rich became poor so that you could have the only riches that matter, the riches of God's grace and mercy. And if that truth saturates your heart, then money is just a tool. It's just a way to bless. 
It's just the way to live. It's just the way to, to survive in the world the way things are. But it is not something that controls you or has any corner of your heart. Because the one who had the riches of heaven gave it all up to come and to be a vagabond, a wanderer, to die without a penny to his name and without clothes upon his back so that he could give you the only riches that really matter at all. God's approval. Some, some Christians say, <coughs> fine, I, I know that I should give, but why do you have to remind me? bothers me that you remind me. Um, but here's the thing. Everyone loves being reminded of things that they love. Um, you know, if, if, if someone comes up to me and says, do you remember when the Yankees won the World Series? Da, 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 da. I'm not like, don't remind me. I don't, I don't want to know. Or if they're like, can you, can you remember? One of my favorite memories was when we used to play fall softball and our team, Tony was on the team and Andy and Derek, and we went undefeated and we won the championship and I scored the winning run in the championship game. And th that memory, anytime somebody wants to talk about that, I'm all ears. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's relive it. Because people love to be reminded about things that they actually love. So if your heart this morning is, I know I got to give, but stop reminding me. Can I just ask you to re-examine your heart? Are you really happy to give? Or is it just a duty? And then the last thing is that some people say, well, when you make it about obedience, then you steal the joy. <laughs> when you say I have to, then, it's, then it's still, you steal the joy of giving. And I was thinking about this. And you ever have this situation in your home where you were about to do something Maybe I was going to do the dishes or something or do something to bless Aaron. And then right, right before I do it, she asks me to do it. And what happens? It doesn't sort of steal. You're like, ah, I was going to, you know, and now you're almost like angry. You were about to willingly do it, but because they asked you to do it, now you don't want to do it. You know why? Because I think in that situation, you really were still going to do it out of self-interest and not for that person. Because if it was strictly for that person, you wouldn't care if they asked you or not. You'd be like, hey, yeah, absolutely, I want to. But if it was for you to have self, if it was your self-interest that you want to be noticed for what you're about to do, then when somebody asks you to obey and do something, it steals the joy. And so if you think that giving is just about uh, joy and not about obedience, then it's possible in your heart that you're still giving out of self-interest. You're like, I'll give because I want to be noticed before God when I give. But when you say I have to give, it steals that opportunity from me. Okay, so giving we have a choice so let's end the message two similarities number one god brought the victory alone number two we have a choice what to do with it but then i said remember there's two major or there's two major similarities but there's one major difference and here's the major difference our hope is even better than the lepers our hope is even better imagine with me you know the story ends and and we're just left, we don't know what happens to these lepers. But can you imagine with me that night as these lepers are falling asleep and they're thinking, man, what a day. My belly is full. I hid all that wealth over there under that tree. Nobody knows it's over there. What, a, what an amazing day. But is it possible, I thought about this, that right before they fell asleep, the last thought that entered their mind was this, but I'm still a leper but I'm still a leper. I got food, I got clothes, I got money, but I'm still a leper. In other words, these men were still gonna die. Their momentary problem of physical hunger was taken care of. The, the problem of being under siege from a physical enemy has ended. And maybe even for a few hours, they were not looked down upon by the rest of that city. 
Maybe they were the heroes for a day. But can I tell you that that doesn't mean that they let them back into the city. It doesn't mean that they got to go home and, and sleep in the same bed as their wife or pick up their child or experience the hug from another person. Because at the end of the day, they're still lepers. Our hope is better than theirs. Because their most profound problem, their deepest need, wasn't met. But not us. Not us. Because we live free forever and now. We are spiritual lepers. And Jesus Christ, God, our relationship with God does not just meet our temporary needs. In fact, that's not the primary reason why we have a relationship with Jesus. So that our bellies can be full and so that we can have clothes upon our backs. And so we can have a roof over our heads and we can have all this, that. That is not why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. Our greatest need was not for food. Our greatest need was not for knowledge. Our greatest need was not even for relationships with each other. Our greatest need was for salvation and that's what Jesus Christ came to do to be the savior of the world and so unlike these lepers who at the end of that night still were left lacking still were left wanting you and I do not lack we do not want because Jesus Christ came and he did something about the most profound problem and it's the human heart he came to change the human heart by being not just our model not just our example not just our boss but our savior Jesus met our deepest need, salvation. So my, my closing challenge to you is don't settle for lesser hopes. Don't settle for lesser hopes, even good things. Don't put your hope in politics. Don't put your hope in the economy. Don't even put your hope in family. And listen, on Father's Day, isn't it important to say this? Because to be honest, Father's Day is a very difficult day for some people. This is a hard day for some people. There are fathers who are filled with regret. They wish they could go back and do things over. There are children who wish their fathers had been different, who wish they had known their fathers, who wish they had a relationship with their father. This is a tough, you know, this is a tough day for some people. And on this day, which is extremely tough for some people, I want to very sensitively say to you that your greatest hope is not in your earthly father. Your greatest hope is not in if only this, if only that, because your greatest need is for a savior. And Jesus Christ came to save us. And the hope that sets us free, it sets us free to live for others. It sets us free to give to others because a hope worth having is a hope worth giving. And Jesus not only gave us the perfect example of this on the cross, but at the cross and through his life and through his resurrection, he gave us the power and the motivation to do the same. Is it hard for you to give any, anything. I'm not just talking about money now. Is it hard for you to give kind words? Is it hard for you to, to give your time without wanting to be noticed also? Is it hard to give your heart to people? I just want to encourage you to look to the cross to consider that there is a God who has won a victory for us that has given us a hope that we couldn't earn ourselves. He gave us good news. Now you and I have a choice what do we do with this good news? If something's truly good news, we're going to run around telling people, aren't we? I'll close with this. I had lunch this past week at <clears throat> P.F. Chang's. If I start drilling, it's because I just said P.F. Chang's. And uh, we were leaving. I was at a meeting there, and I was leaving to come back to Syracuse. The manager was standing there. I turned to her, and I said, 
Let me ask you a question. What do we have to do to get a P.F. Chang's in Syracuse? And she said to me, wait till next August. I said, well, my, knees, my knees got a little weak. <laughs> Room started to spin a little bit. And I said, uh, wait, what do you, let me just be clear here. What are you saying? She said, there's a lot of very serious talk. They're going to decide by this August about putting a P.F. Chang's, most likely somewhere in Carousel, uh, next August. And I thought, no, she didn't give me a definite well, she made it sound like it's very, very serious, right? So the first thing I do once I walk out of there, once I regain my consciousness, is I take my phone out and I, <laughs> I put it on Facebook. And I put it on Twitter. Why? Because it's good news to me. It's good news. And, and I, want, I want other people to enjoy the good news. When something is truly good news, here's the motivation for giving it just to let other people in on the joy of what you're experiencing. So what is the motivation for giving good news to the people around us and telling them about who Jesus Christ is? Because we're afraid that we'll go to hell if we don't. No, that's not joy. Because we're better than people who don't. We're better than those Christians that don't do that. No, absolutely not. Here's why we give the good news to the world around us. Because we want to let them in on the joy. And if there's anything in your heart that kind of hesitates in getting good news out, then the issue is not so much work on your will so that you'll do it, but here's the issue. Go back to the cross and ask yourself, do I really, really believe this is good news? Because with, with all of your heart, if you are convinced that it's good news, you won't be able to help yourself. You'll be like me driving back from Rochester, helpless to the pull of wanting to let everyone that I know know there's good news. But this good news of the cross is even that much better, of course, than any sort of good news I found out this week. Let's bow our heads and pray.